following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. So, we are going to look at the story in the Gospel of Matthew. It's told in a few Gospels, but we'll read it from Matthew's Gospel this morning. So, if you've got a Bible... Uh, you can pull that out. There's a few Bibles on the back table if you want to whip down and get one. If you've got it on your device, you can open that up and uh, open up your Bible app. And we'll read from Matthew chapter 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of them and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Well, I don't know whether you remember, um, back in 1995, the America's Cup Regatta of 1995. Anyone remember that? I think that was the best America's Cup regatta of all time. I was in uh, year 12, so sixth form at the time, and it was just the, it was just the perfect event, I thought. You know, you got um, the, the ultimate enemy, Dennis, Dennis Connor. Remember him? Dirty Dennis. Yeah, he was just the ultimate arch rival. And uh, you had Black Magic, that incredible boat, this just massive boat, a lot bigger than what, um, what we'd had in the past. It was just this, this monumentous vessel uh, you had uh, Peter, it was the era of Peter Blake and Russell Coots, these, these legends of the sport. It was the campaign of the Red Sox. You remember that? Everyone's wearing the Red Sox. And uh, New Zealand was just completely consumed by this event. And the regatta went in our favor. It was amazing. We won 5 0. Uh, and the best thing of the whole regatta was that the Australian boat sunk. Remember that? It just topped it off. It was amazing. And then after we won, there was that huge ticker tape parade up Queen Street. And I remember I got off school for the day to go to that parade with a few friends. And we arrived on Queen Street and we got this spot right on the corner of Queen Street and Aotea Square. We climbed up on this, this one-story building and sat on the roof there and just got a spectacular view of the parade, this ticker tape parade as it came up Queen Street and then turned into Aotea Square and just the masses of ticker tape and the noise of the crowds, just every spot that could possibly be occupied was occupied. It was this monumental event uh, and, and just a huge event in, in, my own, uh, in my own childhood. It was amazing. Now, I want you to imagine if somebody had been at that event that was from a completely different culture, who knew nothing of the America's Cup, who knew nothing of our country's sporting history, who knew nothing of the context of what was going on, what would they have made of that? 
What would they have thought of all this? They probably could have pieced together a few details of what was going on. They would probably have figured out this was a celebration of some kind. There were these heroes being honoured in some way. But probably some of the detail would have been a bit lost on them. Uh, why is everyone wearing these red socks? What's all that about? Uh, why is there all this paper flying through the air? Uh, if, if you don't know, the, if you don't have the local knowledge, these things get a little bit lost. Uh, it takes some unpacking. And it's a bit like that with the story of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. As you read the text, we can pick up bits and pieces of information. And, we, and we've got enough. And you can see there's obviously some kind of celebration here. And there's a lot of fanfare. And Jesus is being celebrated. But then some of the particulars get a bit lost on us. Why, why are there these palm branches being waved around? Why are people putting their cloaks out? Why, why are people saying Hosanna? And we can take some guesses at those things, but to really understand them, you need a little bit of local knowledge. You need to understand what was going on at the time. And so I want to unpack this a little bit with you and just set the scene for what was going on here. Now, the most important thing we need to understand about this event is that it happened during Passover. Uh, and, and that was a whole week-long celebration in Jerusalem. Uh, it happened every year, still does. Really important event for the Jewish people. That, that's the time of the year where they celebrate God delivering them from Egypt. Uh, you can read that story in Exodus, that, that story of God rescuing his people from captivity, bringing them into freedom. That's what the Jewish people are celebrating uh, in the festival of Passover. And so in Jesus' day and, and through biblical history, this event centered around Jerusalem. Uh, there were masses of people in the city at this time. Anyone who could make it to Jerusalem for the festival would get there from around Israel and from around the world. So you had the population of Jerusalem just swelled massively during that time. Uh, you had all sorts of processions, all sorts of ceremonies in the temple. You had processions of people singing and, and chanting the Psalms and singing the Psalms and sacrifices being offered in the temple and all these celebrations of the, the identity of Israel as the chosen people of God. Now, by the time of Jesus, by the time Passover is being celebrated in the first century, it had taken on a particular focus and flavor because Israel's celebrating Passover, but they're celebrating it now as an occupied people. So they're celebrating this event of God bringing them out of slavery and bringing them into freedom. But as they're walking through the streets in these processions, on every street corner, there's a Roman soldier. And as you get closer to, to the temple, there's, there's whole garrisons of Romans standing there. And so there's this reminder in the minds of the Jewish people that we're not really free at all. That Israel was occupied by a hostile empire. Rome were the ones who were in control. And while they gave Israel a limited degree of freedom, they very much ruled with an iron fist. They were an aggressive empire. They were a brutal empire. They tolerated absolutely no resistance. And they took every opportunity to let everybody know who was really in charge. So you have this kind of irony where the Jewish people are celebrating the story of their freedom, the story of their deliverance. But they're doing this as an oppressed people. They're doing this as an occupied people who are not really free at all. And so Passover became for the Jewish people in the time of Jesus, not only a looking back and remembering what God had done in delivering them, but a time of longing for God to do it again and longing for God to bring about another deliverer, raise up another Moses, give us another David who would come and lead us in victory against our oppressors. This is what they longed for. Because they looked at these Romans and they wanted them out of their land. 
That's where the symbolism comes in. That's why they're waving palm branches around. The palm branches are a national Jewish symbol. It's like a national flag. So you're waving this palm branch around. It's like waving a national sovereignty flag in the face of the Romans and saying, we are the ones who belong here, not you. This is our land. It's not your land. We want you out of here. This is the kind of message that's being sent. And even when the people shouted, Hosanna, I mean, we think of that as a, as a shout of praise, and it is, comes out of the Psalms. But you know what it literally means? God save us. It's the cry of a desperate people. It's the cry of an oppressed people asking God save us. God deliver us, deliver us from our oppressors, deliver us from our persecutors. And this is what Israel were crying out for. God send us the Messiah. That's who they wanted because they'd read their Old Testament and they knew the Messiah, the King, was coming. So they're saying through Passover, God, send us this deliverer. Send us this great warrior who's going to raise up an army, drive the Romans out of town and give us back our land, back our sovereignty and make us the nation that you've always wanted us to be, God. Would you come and do that again just as you did it back in Exodus? So you've got all these things swirling around during the time of Passover. It was a time when tensions got really high. Sometimes they would spill over into protests, uprisings. And then the Romans would come in really quickly and stamp that out. It was a time sometimes of bloodshed and violence. It was political. It was tumultuous. It was a time of national pride, which sometimes got out of hand. And all of this is the context in which this story is set. You've got to keep all of this stuff in your head as you imagine what this scene was like. And so into all of this, all of this national, imperial, political turmoil comes Jesus riding on a donkey. So our boost kids are now going to come and help us imagine what that moment might be like. Come on, kids. Come on in. We've got some palm branches here. And we've all got to try and get inside the story here and picture what this might have been like as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. If you, if you can picture what that would have been like, just the, the fanfare, the noise of the crowd, uh, it, was, it probably would have been pretty chaotic. But as, as, you look, as you looked at it, if you were a bystander and you were looking on and you were watching all this, and then uh, we didn't quite have the donkey this morning, but, you know, Jesus would have come in riding on this donkey. And the one thing that would have been really out of place in this whole story is the donkey. That's the one thing. You know, you can understand the palm branches, can understand all the shouts of Hosanna, because that was normal Passover stuff. And here's Jesus coming, the one that everyone hoped, or many hoped, would be the Messiah. But he, he comes in riding on a donkey. And for, for everyone watching, that must have been the part that was quite weird, because a donkey was such a humble, lowly, insignificant, weak kind of animal. You know, it'd be like if, if, a, if a great dignitary turned up at church here, rather than coming in in, in the chauffeured limousine, uh, they just arrived in the old banged-up 1980s Nissan Bluebird or something, you know? Nothing wrong with a Nissan Bluebird, but, you know. It, it, you'd, you'd sort of think, not, you know, this, this is not the kind of dignitary we were expecting. This is not the kind of mode of transportation that you'd be expecting. This is not how kings got around. You know, if you're a king in the first century, you, you ride a chariot. 
Uh, if Caesar had come into Jerusalem, he certainly wouldn't have been riding on a donkey. He would have had a chariot, or at least he would have had a war horse dripping with military regalia. He would have had a, a garrison of soldiers around him. He would have had the crown on. He would have had the robes on. Jesus had none of this. He was just dressed in ordinary clothing, and he comes in riding on a donkey. So what are we supposed to make of that? Well, Matthew helps us a bit with that because the way Matthew tells the story, he includes this little quotation from the Old Testament, which is a real help in unpacking and interpreting the story. And the quotation's there in verse 5 in Matthew 21. He quotes from the book of Zechariah, one of the prophets in the Old Testament. And I want to read that verse to you from Zechariah, not Matthew's quotation of it, but from the original uh, in Zechariah so that we get a little bit more of the picture of what's going on here. So it's from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Zechariah is saying a couple of different things here about this king. He's talking about the Messiah who's coming. Ultimately, he is talking about Jesus. He's saying, on the one hand, this king is going to be righteous and victorious. So he's going to be righteous. He's going to have this holy character. He'll be in right standing with God. He'll be the one who knows uh, God like no one else knows him, who has this privileged, unique, special access to God. He will be absolutely righteous beyond the righteousness of any other human person. And he will be victorious. So he'll be the king. He'll be the conquering king. He is the Messiah. He is coming to win a victory. Make no mistake about that. He is coming to conquer. He is coming to triumph. He is the Messiah that's coming to deliver his people. He's the one you've been hoping for, Israel. That's the message Zechariah is sending. But then he comes over the other side and he says, not only is this Messiah righteous and victorious, but he is also lowly and riding on a donkey. And so he's saying, this, this king who is coming, he's going to be victorious, but not in the way you expect. Not in the way that you're, you're wanting or hoping for. The way this king is going to rule is not going to be through military might. The way this king is going to rule is not going to be through coercion. It's not going to be through bullying. It's not going to be like Caesar. It's not going to be ruling with an iron fist. It's not going to be stamping down anyone else. It's not going to be treading over other people. It's not going to be this kind of dictator or this kind of despot kind of way of ruling. It's not going to be like that. He's going to rule through humility. He's going to rule through love. He's going to rule through lowliness and meekness. And that's going to be the nature of this kingdom that he's setting up, not a military-style kingdom. It's going to be a kingdom of humility. It's going to be a kingdom where the first are last. The one who wants to be great becomes the servant of all. That's the nature of this kingdom that Jesus is building. And he talked about this kingdom, a kingdom where if someone wants you to go one mile, if the Roman soldier wants you to carry his pack one mile, you carry it too. Uh, this kingdom where if someone wants to take one garment, you give them two. Where if someone wants to lend from you, you, you give them freely without asking for it back. Where if someone strikes you on one cheek, you, you turn the other cheek. These kinds of values, these are the values of this king. These are the values of this kingdom. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the persecuted. This is a totally different type of king. A totally different type of Messiah to the one who people were expecting. This is a king who's going to build his kingdom on love 
selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love and compassion and kindness. A king who was going to come in lowliness. A king who was going to come not to be served by everybody else, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. He's a king, all right. But he's the humble king. And the ultimate demonstration of that was not Palm Sunday. It's what happened the following Friday. Because Palm Sunday started a chain of events that led through the cleansing of the temple and so on, all the way to the cross on Friday. And on the cross, you see exactly those same two dimensions of Jesus' nature coming to the fore. The same ones that we see on Palm Sunday, the same ones that Zechariah talked about, the victorious but the humble, the king but the lowly king. Because there's nothing more humble than a Roman cross. It was the ultimate expression of humility. Maybe a better word's humiliation. It was the most degrading, dehumanizing, despised kind of death that you could imagine. Jesus died in utter humility, in the most inhumane way that a human being could possibly die. He died a criminal's death on a Roman cross, an act of utter weakness, utter foolishness, utter shame, utter lowliness, total humiliation. But through that act, Jesus won a decisive victory. Through that act, he won a victory far greater than just conquering another nation or just driving the Romans out of town. He won a victory over all things. He won a victory over Satan, over sin, over death, over the grave. He won a victory over every power of evil, every power, every principality, every authority that sets itself up against God. Jesus won a victory over all of that on the cross. He triumphed over them. Paul says he made a public spectacle of them on the cross. So Jesus won a victory far greater than we could ever imagine, far greater than we could ever comprehend. But he did it through weakness. He did it through humility. He did it by making himself last and giving his life away. And so we've got to keep both of these dimensions of Jesus together. And we think about Palm Sunday, we think about who Jesus is, we think about the Easter events themselves. You've got to, got to keep these two dimensions of Jesus' nature together. That he is the king. He's the triumphal king. And we call this the triumphal entry, and it is. But he's a different type of king than the one we were expecting. He's a humble king. He's lowly and he's meek. And the question for us, I think, is what does it mean then for us to follow that kind of king? What does it mean for us to be servants of that king? If we're followers of that king, if we belong to Jesus, if we're part of that kingdom, if we're citizens of that kingdom, what does that mean? What does it mean for us to belong to that kind of king who acted in that kind of way? Doesn't it mean that we're called to have that same heart of humility in our lives. To ask God to give us that same spirit of humility, of meekness, and servanthood that Jesus had. Because we follow a king who said, whoever wants to be great among you must become your servant. Whoever wants to be first must become last. It's not easy to hear in a culture where we're all so concerned with being first and so concerned with having everyone else recognize how awesome I am. But this is the king we serve. 
And this is the kind of kingdom that we're a part of. And we need to consider what this means in the day-to-day of our own lives. What does it mean for us to follow in the way of this humble king? I think of, there's particular names and faces, I guess, for me that come to mind when I think about this. And it's, it's not necessarily the, the dramatic or big things, but it's, it's people that have embodied the same kind of spirit. I think of Ellen, who's uh, part of our church family here. Most of you know him. And Ellen's been very successful in business. He's held some really significant roles in uh, business and local government in New Zealand and in South Africa. But uh, do you know where Ellen is right now? He's out in Kiwi Block, sitting with a group of five-year-old boys. And he's teaching them this story. And he's got a little gang of kids there, and he's opening up this exact same story for them and helping them see Jesus, the humble king. And it occurs to me that exactly what he's doing is modeling who Jesus was by not needing any great position, status, recognition, but just wanting to help others discover the same Jesus who's made a difference in his life. I think of uh, a woman, Jane, who was part of our church, and uh, she came out with a group of us one night that went out on Queen Street and gave some hot meals to homeless people on Queen Street. And as she talked to some of these people who were living rough, she just had a way of talking to them that was different from the way the rest of us were talking to them. And I think the rest of us, without even realizing what we were doing, we were quite patronizing and condescending because you've got something to give. You've got a hot meal to give, and so it's very easy to look down your noses at people and treat them like lesser people. But Jane had a way of talking to them somehow that was different. And she would talk to them like people with dignity. And she'd talk to them as people, even if whatever kind of background they'd had and whatever kind of choices they were making, she'd talk to them as people that were made in the image of God. And she would talk to them about their gifts and their interests and things they could do to make a contribution and things they they could do to have a voice. She talked to them like people that were equals, not people that were somehow lesser or inferior. And it stayed with me. You've all got your own examples and it looks different in each of our lives, but I think it's something we need to consider that if we truly follow this humble king, at some point we've got to think about what it means for us to follow in that same way. Maybe for you it's thinking about a particular relationship that you've got. Maybe there's a relationship that's really difficult for you right now and you're struggling and there's tension and it's conflict and, and, and you know the other person's got all the stuff and they should be saying sorry and they should be owning this and all, all this injustice going on. Maybe following in the way of Jesus means you taking the first step. Maybe it means you sending the text, picking up the phone, initiating the contact. And I know that that may mean swallowing a few insults. I know that might leave you with a bit of a sense of injustice, but maybe that's what it means for you to follow in the way of Jesus to follow the humble king, to take the first step towards reconciliation, to take the first step towards peace, to take the first step towards forgiveness, maybe, putting the other person ahead of yourself. Maybe it's simply looking around and asking yourself, is there another family? Is there another individual? Is there someone in my life who I can serve in some way? If Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, is there someone somehow that you can serve whether it's helping them out in some practical way, whether it's meeting up with them just to let them know that they're valued and encouraged, whether it's financial help, whatever it is, is there someone in your world that you could show the love of Jesus to? When we do these things, I'm not talking about just being good citizens, not even talking about really just being good Christians. What we are doing is becoming more like Jesus. And we don't do that to earn any brownie points with God. We're already loved. We're already accepted. We're already covered in His grace. 
But we do this now as those who are loved by Jesus to allow his spirit to work in our hearts to make us more like the king who we serve, to make us more like the king who we worship, to make us more like the king who rode into Jerusalem that day on a donkey and said something about who he was and who we are called to be. So I pray this story would stay with us, even though we're journeying towards Easter and we're going to focus on the cross and we're going to focus on the resurrection and we'll talk about those things next Sunday. I pray that maybe this story of Jesus riding into Jerusalem would stay with us this week. And as we prepare ourselves for Easter, that it might just resonate in our hearts, it might percolate away in our minds, and it might just cause us to think in some new ways about who Jesus truly is. Because when he rode into Jerusalem, he showed us something about the heart of God. He showed us something about who God truly is, a humble king. And he showed us something about who he is making us to be. So may we appreciate all the more the king who we serve, who is the king, the righteous and victorious king, but who comes to us in humility, who comes to us in lowliness and asks us to turn towards others with that same spirit of lowliness, meekness and humility in our lives, ultimately for his glory and not our own. Let's take that spirit on in our lives. Take that attitude on in our lives as we enter into Holy Week this week. Would you pray with me? Jesus, it's, it's easy, I guess, with the benefit of having 2,000 years to look back on these things, to think that we've got you figured out and think that we know who you are. But Jesus, you, you're never the king that we're expecting. You've always got new things to show us about who you are and about who we are. Jesus, we thank you for the heart that you showed us. We thank you for the nature that you had. We thank you that that act of riding into Jerusalem that day was not just something you did, but it showed us who you are. That it takes us into the depth of your character, to the depth of the heart of God. And so Jesus, now we pray that you'd bring to our mind names and faces, of people that you might be calling us to serve, just as you came to serve us. And Jesus, again, that we wouldn't do it out of any guilt, that we wouldn't do it out of any sense of trying to make ourselves more presentable to you. We can never do that. We're as acceptable to you now as we'll ever be, because it's your grace. But Jesus, we want to be conformed to you. We want to be more like you, the King who we serve. So help us to be humble. Give us this heart. Give us the spirit. Even when it's hard, it's easy to make it sound glamorous in a sermon, but it's hard in real life. So in those moments when we're called on to put ourselves last, would you give us the courage and the strength of your spirit to take that difficult step? Looking to you, our King, who gave so much for us. We thank you, Jesus. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.